Children, in my personal experience, are slightly psychopathic. Like my, I have a six-year-old who is a good, mm-hmm. kind kid, but he j- loves villains. He always wants to be the bad guy. If he could make Disney films, they would just be an unstoppable robot that that crushes anyone who stands in his way. The end. That's the whole movie. And so there's a kind of uh, mania in in children and what they actually want from their story. So one question yeah. I had is it's not clear to Dylan, me. Dylan, Dylan, yeah. before you go any further, <laughs> I love the thing that you just did, which was to identify a less than flattering trait in your own son and quickly generalize it to all children. <laughs> <laughs> With a yes, of course. Nice try. Nice try. Nice try. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. And that voice you just heard belongs to Malcolm Gladwell, author, podcaster, and host of Revisionist History. Today, Malcolm is joining me for a discussion about the way children's stories can impact our experience of the world, inspired by his latest obsession with The Little Mermaid. Specifically, his problems with The Little Mermaid. And over the course of our conversation, we'll visit Jean Le Carré's Berlin, 17th century England, Narnia, Malcolm's beautifully boring childhood home in rural Ontario, and explore the thin line between imagination and reality. That's after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide-open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself. You might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. So, uh, tell me if this is is right, but you relatively recently, you saw the movie The Little Mermaid for the very first time. I did. I did. I had, in fact, (laughs) never seen a Disney animated movie until March of 2021 at the age of 57. You realize this is madness, of course. This is a kind of insanity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's the insane position here? That an entire culture of people has devoted an entire chunk of their childhood to watching a whole series of movies of rather dubious quality and even more questionable um, philosophical content. Or my case, where I avoided it all and read books. You might be wondering why, after 57 years of holding out on Disney animated films, 
Malcolm Gladwell suddenly felt the need to watch The Little Mermaid. And the reason is a critique he read, written by a legal scholar named Laura Beth Nielsen. She watched the movie with her kids and was horrified to see how the law was portrayed in the film The Little Mermaid. So the thing, one of the things she focuses on is that Ariel signs a contract with Ursula in which she gives up her voice in exchange for a chance of being human. The contract says, if you fail to get the prince to fall in love with you, you will then become Ursula's slave for the rest of your life. And she can't get out of this contract because she fails to get the prince to fall in love with her. And Laura Beth Nielsen points out that that's not how contracts work. In fact, the huge amounts of time and attention in the law is spent to breaking contracts that are considered to be unjust. And yet we have this movie that comes along and says, oh, she's on her name. That means hmm. even though she's a minor and she was selling a body part, <laughs> she's under name. She's done for. She the only way she can get out of this is just murder somebody because the law can't help her anymore. And Laura Beth Nielsen says, "Wait a minute, that is the exact opposite of what the law is all about." The law says, "No, you don't have to murder somebody to get out of a bad contract. You can go to court." So Malcolm Gladwell's big issue with The Little Mermaid is this. The movie gives kids a blueprint for understanding how the world works. And that blueprint is wrong. And it's not because of the things in the movie that don't exist, like mermaids or magic, but because of how the movie represents the things that do exist, the things that are real, things like contracts and monarchies and, and, and love. And they give it all this fairy tale Disney veneer. But for Malcolm, those fairy tales aren't preparing kids for the real world. And well, the first gut reaction to hearing this can be, look, it's a kid's story. It's not supposed to be real. What's the big deal? Laura Beth and Malcolm's point is that the details actually do have a big impact on the way kids view and interact with the world. And so things like, say, glorifying vigilante justice or a major plot point involving a woman giving up her voice for a man could be worthy of a little more scrutiny. And it got Malcolm so stirred up, he decided to dedicate three episodes of the latest season of Revisionist History to identifying and correcting the wrongs of The Little Mermaid. Like, he actually got a group together, and they rewrote it. This, of course, is not a podcast about The Little Mermaid. Oh, my God, could you imagine? Uh, <laughs> bobs. I got 20. This is a podcast about places in the world. But, well, I was listening to Malcolm's podcast series, which struck me is that the thing that bothers him so much about The Little Mermaid, the way we imagine something and then come to believe that it is true, we do it with physical places in the world all the time. You know, one of the things that I loved about the series is this exploration of the idea that from the moment we're born, we're building a kind of mental map of the world, of its rules, yeah. of its geography, of its places. And, you know, that process goes both ways. So these stories shape expectations, but expectations shape the world. They shape places. Uh, and, you know, by expecting something to be, we kind of call it into existence. This begs the question, were there stories, uh, you know, and I'm especially, I'm interested in place, so I'm especially interested in stories with a well-imagined sense of place, Narnia, Middle-earth, mm -hmm. what have you. Were there stories that uh, you loved as a child or fictional worlds that, that you loved? Oh, yeah. I mean, the Narnia books. Mm. 
uh, obviously. Uh, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings, all of those Tolkien books. But much more importantly, there was a series of books that were written by, there's an English children's book writer from the 40s and 50s who wrote all of these books about, I think his name is Trees or Welch, Ronald Welch, Ronald Welch. Welch wrote a book about a, a Scottish royal uh, aristocratic family, several generations of them, who are always, they're always brilliant swordsmen. And they're always getting into, they're always dueling with like evil French Republicans on the beach of Normandy, that kind of thing. Um, and I must have read, my brother and I read those books multiple, multiple times. They were, I would say, the central, um, the, you know, the, the time and place that I spent the most imaginative space in as a kid was sort of 17th century aristocratic England and the beaches <laughs> of Normandy. And like, it was like that kind of 17th century English aristocratic life, for example, that had an enormous hold on me. Those country houses, the carriages, the horses, the, you know, the, you know, the descriptions of the, of the cold, rainy, you know, day, you know, all that stuff, just all of it's fantastic. Do you think those worlds shaped your, your expectations as, as you grew up? I mean, did they kind of, uh, affect you as you grew into an adult? Do you feel like you carried those worlds with you? So the problem for me was made acute by the fact that I grew up in rural Ontario in the seventies, hmm. which is just about the most kind of placid in a good way, boring place on earth, like so safe, secure, stable. We never went any, like we would go to <laughs> Jamaica to my mother's parents. And once we went to England, but it was very expensive, but we really didn't go anywhere. We didn't go out to eat. We didn't go on vacations. We didn't go to the movies. We didn't go, we didn't go anywhere. So it was all about, we went to the library. That's where we went. So everything was about something I had to construct for myself. Have you, as an adult, have you ever gone to those places, like to sort of aristocratic feeling part of England? Have you had a chance to sort of actually travel to those places and experience them oh, yeah. as, a, as an adult? I took a vacation a couple of years ago to Ireland and we rented out, you know, the way you rent out these old manor houses. And, you know, it was just, I, I, it was magical. And I realize now for exactly the reason I was, I was finally in, directly inhabiting the kind of world of my, the imagined world of my childhood. Have you ever traveled to a place that ex really didn't match your expectations of what it would be? That you had an image in your head and then you got there and you thought this could not be farther from what I had, I had been picturing. I have either elevated a place to such a level of uh, that it can never, the real thing can never match, or I've kind of with, I've, I've kind of prevented myself from imagining because I want to hmm. see it for real, or I'm happy, you know, I have a romanticized version of Venice, hmm. which doesn't match real Venice. I mean, real Venice is a nightmare. Terrible um, to the worst. <laughs> real, real Venice during high season is like so it's much, much better to have yeah. romantic Venice. Yeah. I here's a good example. I spent a lot of time in Berlin. I have a romanticized version of Berlin from the fact that I have read my entire life hundreds of spy thrillers. Hmm. 
I have in my head divided Berlin in 1964, right? That's like, I can lead you down every street in Berlin from that era, like in my imagination. <laughs> the weather, I have it all there. The yeah. kind of, it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, and my, the Berlin I know now that doesn't even compete with that notion. It's just, it's intact. There are always little corners of Berlin where there is a kind of, window and what the old Berlin was like. You can sort of, you can see it in little glimpses. And I always love that. So you, if you explore long enough and, you know, there are, there's a little coffee shop that I often go to in Prenzlerberg, which I don't know, but in my imagination, it was there in 1964. It looks like it. Yeah. I think in some ways, you know, whether it's in love or travel or whatever it is, we, we can, spend our lives chasing that first glimpsed romantic vision of something that we have, whether it's like the love story of the little mermaid or, you know, in my case, I'm also a fantasy fan. So I was, you know, Narnia and Middle Earth were my mm -hmm. things. And, and, you know, I think in some ways the starting of Atlas Obscura is some kind of like seeking to, to find that reality. So I want to come back to sort of what you did with the, the Little Mermaid. And you did this deep dive into it to sort of identify and fix its moral problems. How should we think about the fairy tales and storytelling we do in general? And how can we square giving kids what they crave in a fairy tale with give them a meaningful map of the world that they can they can use? Is this an endeavor that we should be trying to to undertake, to, to tell better fairy tales? Yeah, because the child is actually quite a demanding consumer of these tales. They're not passive. Yeah. You know, when your kid is chortling with delight at Roald Dahl stories, that's not a kind of um, unthinking impulse. He's actually, he's responding on a relatively deep level yeah. to what yeah. the story is telling him. And he's, he may even be, he's probably experiencing the story on a much deeper level than you are. Hmm. This is a novel experience. He's going someplace he's never gone before. I mean, there's all kinds hmm. of really interesting happens. So I think we have a responsibility to kind of take that interest level of children seriously. You yeah. know, they're not messing around. This is, this is like, this is life or death for them. It's like, hmm. it matters, right? It's, they're living in their imaginations. Yeah. And if we're just lazy and sloppy, and just give them crap. It's like, it's a tragedy to do that. I have a quick question. Since watching The Little Mermaid, have you watched any other Disney films? No. <laughs> Not doing it. Well, I'm about to have a daughter, so by- Oh, congratulations. My, my feeling was, this is all heading. Oh, you're, yeah, you got it coming. Don't, yeah, don't worry about it. You'll so get I, there. No, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. gonna, I might as well watch it for the first time with her when she's of age, so. <laughs> If you want to listen to Malcolm Gladwell's full, actual series about The Little Mermaid, check out the Revisionist History podcast feed. And thanks to Malcolm Gladwell for coming on the show and talking with us today. Um, all right, guys. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks for coming yeah. and talking. Been fun. Bye-bye now. Bye. This podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. This episode was produced by Sarah Wyman. The rest of our production team includes Doug Baldinger, Camille Stanley, Manolo Morales, Chilenya Onike, Maddie Weinberg, Camille Mojica, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore. 
Peter Clowney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was sound designed by Chris Naka and mixed by Luce Fleming. And I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I'll talk to you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.